0: pray together. Father, what a glorious morning. Our hearts are lifted on this morning as we remember the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Come now by your spirit as we attend to your word, and would you do something in us that we might go out of here changed people. We pray it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I once waited in a long line to meet someone that I really admired. You ever done that before? I'd read books about this man. He's incredibly influential. He's a brilliant man, and I'd spent a lot of money and traveled a long way in order to meet with him. Turns out I wasn't the only one with the idea. The first time I stood in line, it was too long, and I was too impatient, and so I decided that I would come back later. The next time, The line was shorter, but it still took a while. Well, finally, it came my turn. And I stepped into the place where I was to meet with the man, and he wasn't there. Now, you might have think that I would have been angry, asked for my money back, turned around to other people and complained, but I wasn't at all. On the contrary, I was glad. You see, I knew he wasn't going to be there. That's why I had come to Israel. That's why I had waited in line at this church in Jerusalem. That's why all these other people were there too. It wasn't a joke. The whole point of coming to this place was to step inside this little room and to find it empty. The man we all admired was not the the absence of this person was a cause of great rejoicing. Well, my experience was a little different. ...than the first people to visit that place, seeking after the very same man. They did not know what I knew. They fully expected to find him there, or at least to find his body. We read their story in Luke 24. It was early on the first day of the week, Sunday by our calendar. Some women went to this little room, this tomb... They had brought spices to prepare the body of the one they called Lord. But when they arrived, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The man they were coming to seek was not there. Instead, there were two other men who were in dazzling apparel. And they were, of course, terrified. But those men meant no harm. They were there to announce the astonishing message of Easter. He is not here. But has risen. These men, who are really angels, we presume, go on to tell the women remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered. It was necessary he be delivered into the hands of sinful men and then be crucified and on the third day rise. They announce the gospel, the good news that which was planned from all eternity by God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Jesus willingly laid down his life on a Roman cross. Why? For our sins. For all the ways we have subtly or overtly doubted God, rebelled against him, hurt other people, chosen our own will over his will. He died for those sins. It was necessary, the angel said. It must happen. Necessary for what? For our salvation, for a new creation, for God's kingdom to break into our world in the middle of history. There had to be death. There had to be death. And yet death could not contain the one who created life, who was full of life. The father of the Lord Jesus Christ would not abandon him to the grave. And so on the third day, Jesus left the tomb. He rose up. He didn't come back from the dead like Lazarus did. Remember his friend who he brought back from the dead? That was amazing experience, but Jesus was a little different. He went through death into an entirely new kind of human life, into a new body. Jesus knew this would happen. He shared it with his disciples beforehand. And so the command of the angels was simply, remember, remember what he said to you. And they did remember. We read in verse eight, Luke 24, the pieces for them begin to fall into place. The picture that had been blurry comes into view. The sun that had risen behind the clouds was now breaking through, dispelling the darkness. The darkness. And so the women did the one thing that you do when you have news this good. They went and they told someone. They went and they told the eleven disciples. And then the news begins to spread from person to from person to city to city, from country to country. For two thousand years it's been happening, friends. And when the story of this man is told, of his death and, and of his resurrection, something happens. You might call it magical. The Holy Spirit shows up and he creates faith in a person's heart as they hear the message. And as they hear the message, they believe the message. And in believing, they have life. That's what's been happening for 2,000 years. That's how the church is built up. And I pray that God the Holy Spirit would do it again today. Do it in this church. Do it in every church around this city this morning. May it be so. This is the Easter story. The death the resurrection of Jesus, do you believe it? Not as a myth, not as a a nice story, not as a, well, yes, he rose, but in a spiritual sort of way. No, that, that Jesus, fully God, fully man, really died and bodily rose from the dead. You can't deny this and still be a Christian. The whole Christian faith hinges on it. There is no Christian faith without it. The Apostle Paul said, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. That means a lot to me because I'm out of the job. But you're not off the hook. He says, so is your faith. Your faith is useless. And here's the kicker. You're still in your sins. No resurrection, no faith, no salvation, no heaven, nothing. Nothing. You may be here this morning and you don't believe this. You you might respect the Christian faith. You might even take the label of, oh, yes, I'm a Christian, but you don't actually believe that Jesus bodily rose from the dead. Well, let me say to you, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm so glad. you're, You're most welcome in this place. And I pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would be working in you, wooing you to himself, creating that faith in your heart as you hear this news proclaimed. But for one who who doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, you you have to explain, if you want to be intellectually honest, you, you need to come up with an explanation of, well, what did happen on that day? Why didn't they ever find the body of Jesus? And particularly, this is the one that gets me, what caused this radical transformation in the disciples who had been hiding out in fear of their own lives, who had denied Jesus In Peter's case? What caused the transformation that all of a sudden they went to boldly proclaiming this, facing the authorities and willingly praising God for their own suffering? If you've read the book of Acts and almost all of them are eventually killed, martyred, not a pleasant death, for their confession of this. How is that? A lot of people say, well, well, the resurrection, and the Christian faith, it's really just uh, something that they fabricated to keep the teachings of, of their, their Lord alive. And that makes sense. And we can be sympathetic to them. Who would die for a lie? Who would die for that? There's a lot of theories put forth to explain what happened on Easter morning, but none of them really fits the evidence if you start breaking them down piece by piece. The only one that does fit, like the, the piece of a puzzle that just goes in the right place, however unlikely, friends, it may seem, is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Now, I would assume that the many here, if not most, do believe this story. You believe it actually happens. But I want to to say to you, that's not enough. What? We've just been talking about how important the story is. How how could I say that it's not enough? The Christian faith hinges on believing the story. That's why we're here, right? To affirm the story, to believe it, to hear it again. And that's good. But it's not enough. It doesn't go far enough. Because there's a difference between believing the Easter story and living in the Easter story. There's a difference between believing and living in it. Do you know the book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? It is part of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. Shocker, Randy's quoting C.S. Lewis. How could it be? He named one of his children after C.S. Lewis. I don't know. Uh, the child, it's a children's story. But adults sometimes, I think more than kids, are impacted by this story. It's kind of like a Pixar movie, how there's all this kind of adult level of interaction and the kids level. I think a lot of times the adult level in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia are are more profound. So if you haven't read them or you read them as a kid, do go back and read them. I think you'll be blessed. Uh, the, the, The book was made into a film, but it wasn't very good. I wouldn't recommend you see it. There is, however, one good scene right at the beginning where you have Edmund and Lucy. They were in uh, the previous stories, uh, Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. They had gone into this magical land of Narnia, been transformed, met Aslan, the Christ figure. So you had Edmund and Lucy, but now they found themselves back in England, and they were staying with their very unpleasant cousin. C.S. Lewis begins the book by saying, there are once with a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. So the three children are in Eustace's house and they're in the room and they're looking at a painting of a picture on, uh, of a ship on the sea. Lucy really liked the picture. It felt alive to her. The ship seemed to be moving in some way. The water really seemed to be wet. It reminded her of Narnia. Eustace hated the picture. He called it rotten. He mocked the other kids for liking it. But Edmund was somewhere in between. He also liked the picture. It made him think of Narnia. But it was this reminder that he was stuck in his cousin's house. He wasn't in this wonderful, magical place. Well, in the attitude of the children towards the picture, we can see three different ways that we approach the Easter story. Some are like Lucy. They look at it and it evokes longing. It seems real to them. It reminds them of this other world. Others are like Eustace. They're skeptical. They reject the story, and even if they do so, in a polite way. But many Christians, and I know I've been in this place, are like Edmund. We believe the story. We affirm its truth. But we live outside of it. Deep down, maybe there's even this this painful reminder that we're here And not there. So, Easter Sunday today might be a high point for you. You might feel your heart stirred. I hope you do. But then you're going to have to get up on on Monday morning, and I think it's going to be rainy, and Tuesday and Wednesday, and your problems will not have magically disappeared. And the Easter story that you heard and, and you believed on Sunday won't seem to have a lot of relevance to the marriage that's struggling to the the teenager who's making poor decisions about their life, to to that situation at work that continues to nag at you, or to caring for that loved one who will not get better. And so we resign ourselves to carry on, hoping that one day this this far-off Easter story will come true for us, but day-to-day, if we're honest, we can't see the relevance of an empty tomb in Jerusalem for us. We see the picture, we like the picture, we hear the story, we believe the story, but we're not sure what it means to live in the story. This morning, I want to look at a passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. In this passage, Paul connects the dots between believing the Easter story and living in it. So if you brought your Bibles with you, Open them to Romans chapter six. Romans chapter six. A little bit of context we come into it, Uh, Paul has, of course, been been explaining the Christian gospel for several chapters now. And in chapter five, great chapter, he begins to talk about its blessings of this, this righteousness by faith and how we have peace with God. And he comes to the end of that chapter and he talks about how the law made sin increase. Sin increased, but God's grace increased all the more. God's grace always goes beyond our sin. Wonderful declaration of the gospel. Chapter six, verse one. Paul um, anticipates a faulty conclusion that some could make from that announcement. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see the logic there? They're saying, okay, cool, that's great. If, if God's grace always goes further than we sin, then Why does it matter how I live? Can't I just live how I want now, do the thing the world does, and and then God will take care of it at the end and we'll go to heaven? We believe the Easter story after all. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Surely God will take care of it, like some sort of grace insurance policy for when we die. Well, how Paul answers this, this faulty argument shows the difference between believing the Easter story and living in the Easter story. Look at verse two. By no means, Paul's getting excited. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Wait a minute, Paul. You just talked about how Jesus had died for sin. And I get that. I believe that. What do you mean we who died to sin? You see where he's going? He's beginning to draw us into the story. He continues, verse three. Do you not know? That all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. I love that phrase. Do you not know? He's talking to Christians. He's saying, do you not realize what's happened to you? You're still treating the Easter story as something that happened out there. You're looking at the picture and saying, it's a nice picture. I believe the picture. But what you don't realize is that something happened to you and you're now part of the story. It's your story. And if you don't realize that, you're going to make some faulty conclusions about your life. So, how, according to Paul, are we in the Easter story? Two ways. First, through the death of Jesus. Look at verse four we were buried, therefore, with him. Verse five we have been united with him in a death like his. Or one of my favorite verses from a different book, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Good Friday, a few days ago. Did any of you attend a service? Did you have a Bible study? Did you reflect in any way on the death of Jesus? Did you realize, if you did that, that you were looking at your own obituary? that you were, as it were, looking at your funeral. When I stepped into that, that tomb, that empty tomb in Jerusalem, I was in some mysterious way stepping into my own tomb because we've died with Jesus. That's the first thing we must come to terms with if we're to live in the Easter story. Now here's the really a powerful part about that. When there's a death, there's a severing of relationships. When we get married to someone, we say, till death do us part. Most powerful relationship on earth, but death can separate. Death can free you from it. Paul's point here is that in our death with Jesus, and it was a real death, a very, very significant relationship that we had has ended. It's our relationship to sin, it's over. Death has severed it. And that's wonderful news because it was not a pleasant relationship. It was an abusive relationship. Sin was our master. We were its slave. We did what it said, even when we hated ourselves, even when we felt shame. And now that's over. Romans 6, verse 7, Paul writes, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Did you not realize that this is your story? Good Friday is your story. And so the next time, today, tomorrow, you're wrestling with some temptation and God the Holy Spirit brings it before your conscience, you can say, no, I'm sorry, death did us part. I don't have to. I can, but I don't have to anymore. Submit to your slavery sin. I have been freed. I have died with Christ. That's the implication. But it doesn't stop there. After death, there's life. That's Easter. Look back again, verses four and five. Paul says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of God the Father, we too, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So just as we join Jesus in his death, good news, we also join him in his resurrection. Paul writes, we're we're united to him. Can you just take that word, tuck it away in your mind, come back to it, meditate on it, pray into it? It's a strong word, friends. Theologians are, are plumbing the depths of, what does that mean to be united to Jesus? United in his death, united in his resurrection? I don't know all of that means. But I do know it means that we are, therefore, in the story. His death is our death. His life is our life. Now, there's an important separation between what he says in verse 4 and what he says in verse 5. Verse 4, the implication of resurrection for us now is we too might walk in newness of life. So right now, in, in the middle of the world's life, we get to walk in a spiritual type of resurrection, a new life given by God. We get to live the Easter story daily. But then verse five, it's future tense. He says, we shall be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we haven't fully experienced the goodness of Easter yet. The best part of our story is yet to come. When we die, if we die, or maybe if we stay, the Lord will come back. But if we die, the Lord will one day raise us up And he will take these bodies, transform them into a completely new kind of body, like the body that Jesus had when he was raised. We too will go through death. So Paul will go on a few more verses. And then in verse 11 of chapter 6, he he makes this conclusion and he's appealing to their thinking. He says, so you must consider, you must think of yourselves dead to sin, relationships over, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now you may have noticed that I haven't said anything about baptism. But in verses four and five, Paul points to to baptism as this moment, the, the event through which we are pulled into the Easter story. This morning we have the joy of celebrating the sacrament of baptism. Baptism is understood and it's practiced by Christians in many different ways. We can have unity in Christ even if we come at baptism differently. But let me just offer today one perspective on baptism coming from our tradition. I think it helps shed light on the logic that Paul is using in Romans 6. It's interesting that when Paul wants to remind the Romans that their relationship to sin has ended, it's been severed, he doesn't point to the moment of their conversion or or when they prayed the prayer. Instead, he points to their baptism. And the logic that he has is, do you not realize that something actually happened in your baptism? That a real and meaningful change took place, changing of relationships. When he wants them to understand how they're living in the Easter story, again, he points to baptism. Our participation, friends, in Jesus's death, in his resurrection happened in baptism. That's what he says in verse four. We were buried, therefore, with him, by him, uh, through baptism into death. It's almost like he's saying, what did you think happened when someone poured water over your head or, or dunked you in the river? Did you think it was just a ritual? Did you think it was just a a box you had to check? No, Paul's saying something happened. Just as in Jesus' baptism, something happened, didn't it? The heavens parted. God the Father came down and he acted and he spoke and he blessed and he anointed with God the Holy Spirit and he confers this new identity, this new story, this new mission. He does that for us. Now, there are a lot of questions about baptism, aren't there? A big one is what about faith? Isn't that part of the equation? Isn't the moment of faith uh, the moment of this conversion? How does that play in? Well, Well, Paul's talking about faith for many chapters in Romans. So he's not throwing faith out the window. We have to read this in conjunction with what he said about faith. No one is suggesting that baptism completely devoid of faith is going to automatically save someone in the end. I really wish it could because then evangelism would be so much easier. We just take a bucket of water and go to the pagans and done, you're saved. Everyone who has ever swam in the baptism uh, at the pool at the Y has been baptized because we've done baptisms there and I've blessed that water multiple times. (laughs) But it's not quite that way, is it? Faith is necessary. There are questions about uh, baptizing a child or a baby. We practice that. We're gonna do that today. They're not able to articulate the content of their faith. Not sure that means they don't have any connection with God, though. Don't over-rationalize our relationship with God. But no, they cannot articulate the content of our faith. But we still baptize them, and we have good reasons for that. It has to do with the sign of the covenant, how the Old Testament was circumcision, the New Testament, its baptism, and the, the logic that a, that a Jewish Christian would have followed was, oh, will, you, will you give that sign to the children of believing parents? If you'd like to discuss that more after the service, I'm happy to do that. This morning, I simply want to suggest that if we follow Paul's thinking, not only here in Romans, but in other passages in the New Testament, we see that something powerful happens in baptism. Something powerful enough that when we're struggling with sin, we're struggling with shame, with doubt, with fear, with that relationship with sin, coming back and saying, come back under my slavery. We can point to this event and say, no, I have been baptized. No, something has changed. No, a relationship has ended. I'm in a different story now. I'm no longer a slave. I can walk in newness of life. I can look forward to resurrection." Our baptism can be this wonderful resource of encouragement and faith. Now, some will say, well, I don't remember my baptism because I was baptized as a child. And we'll say that sometimes like it's an unfortunate thing. But I would say, how fortunate you are that from the beginning of your life, your parents in faith brought you to God and he began to work in you through your baptism." Now, your faith might not have matured for many, many years. But be assured that through your baptism, God worked grace in your soul. And he began to nurture seeds of faith that they might grow into maturity just as you have to water a seed in order for it to grow to become a plant. Others might say, well, I didn't mean it when I was baptized. Or my parents didn't mean it. They didn't know what they were doing. That might be true. You might not have meant it. Your parents might not have meant it. But God meant it. Think about if you kind of stumbled your way into a marriage service and you said all these vows and you did all these things. I didn't mean it. Well, too bad, you're married. (laughs) It's like Las Vegas weddings or something. (laughs) Baptism, you see, is primarily about God's work in us. He's the actor in baptism. Not our work for him. Remember, I wanna point you back, Jesus' baptism. Jesus didn't say a word. He didn't make a confession of faith. He surely had faith, but he didn't confess it. Who acted? The Father and the Spirit. The Father spoke. The father acted, the father affirmed his identity, the father sent the spirit to come upon him. So you might not have thought that it meant much, but God did and the history of the church has affirmed that if a baptism has happened in the name of the father, son, and Holy Spirit, even if the minister was lousy and didn't even believe or somebody else, that it it counts, that God showed up somehow. He can take it, he can use it. So let your baptism be an encouragement. If you were baptized at a very young age, you can't remember it, um, and your parents are still alive, talk to them about it, or your godparents, or maybe an aunt and uncle who were there. See if you can find a bulletin from the service. My mom found one for me um, not so long ago, and it's been wonderful to look over it and to, to see the scriptures that were read that morning. I don't know what this means, but I was baptized on Pledge Sunday. Hmm. As Edmund. Lucy and Eustace were discussing and arguing about the painting, something quite unexpected happened. The picture of the ship on the sea came alive. The waves really did start moving. Wind blew out of the picture and they could feel it on their faces. They could smell the salt water. Eustace didn't want any of this. He hated the picture. And so he ran forward to try to stop it. He tried to tear it off the wall, but instead... Quite dramatically, he and his cousins found themselves going through the frame into the picture. They went down into the water, submerged like a burial, like a baptism. But soon they found themselves by a strong arm being raised up out of the water. And when they did, friends, they found themselves in a totally new story. It's a story that had been going on before them, but now it had become their story. This Easter morning, I pray that you believe the Easter story, but I also pray that you would find yourselves quite dramatically pulled into it so that when you wake on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, much of your life will look the same. It will be outwardly the same, but as you remember that Jesus has died for you and you with him and he's been raised and you with him, nothing will ever be the same because you're in a new story. Would you pray with me?